Um, and but as we do, just want to say Happy New Year to all of y'all. Uh, we look forward to seeing you next week as we return to in-person live services. Um, hey, it's, and, and just as where we're going in the coming weeks, uh, this morning we are going to hit uh, the Psalms of Ascent. But next week we'll begin a brief or short series, five-week series entitled The Heart of Jesus, where we're going to be looking at Jesus' heart for his people and how specifically how we see Jesus love so well in the gospel. So we're excited uh, for that and hope you will join us both in person or on the live stream next Sunday morning. Well, we're going to be looking at the Psalms of Ascent this morning. And so I'm going to be looking at two particular passages. Uh, We're going to look at the first chapter of the Psalms of Ascent, and then we're going to look at the last chapter of the Psalms of Ascent this morning. The Psalms of Ascent are a 15-chapter section in the Psalms. Uh, in which it is looking at the travelers or pilgrims on a journey. And so if you have your Bible, uh, look at Psalm chapter 120. Uh, you can read along there, or it should be on the screen here, somewhere over my head or over here. Um, so Psalm 120, we'll read all seven verses and then drop down to Psalm 134. A song of ascents, in my distress, I called to the Lord, and he Answered me, deliver me, O Lord, and from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you, and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior sharp arrows with glowing coals of the, the broom tree. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. Then drop down, we're going to be looking at now Psalm 134, and here's how the song, Psalms of Ascent end. It says this, a song of ascents, come bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. May the Lord bless you from Zion, he who made the heavens and the earth. This ends the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but may the word of our God, may it stand forever. Well, these readings from the Psalms are out of a collection of the Psalms known as the Psalms of Ascent, for ascending up. It is believed that those in the Israelite history who gathered up these songs and poems of worship for corporate worship within the the nation of Israel, and they put these psalms, these 15 psalms, purposely together in a collection. Now, there are various understandings as to the historic use of the psalms of ascent within the history of Israel. There's three main kind of theories as to where this, this collection of psalms came from. One is that it was the songs that were written and that were sung as Israel returned from enslavement from Babylon and from exile to Jerusalem. Still others believe it's the 15 psalms that they would sing at each of the 15 steps that arose up to enter into the temple. At each step, they would stop and they would quote the, one of the particular psalms. But the most persuasive and most commonly held view and most common view is that these were simply the songs that they sang, the Israelites would sing on their way from wherever they lived 
to Jerusalem for one of the three main annual feasts that were celebrated each year. Then in the course of their journey in pilgrimage from their homes to Jerusalem and particularly to the temple, that they would sing these songs together as they rose up and as they traveled on the way to Jerusalem. And therefore, we can call the Psalms of Ascent pilgrim psalms. They are psalms for a journey. And the theme of motif, or motif of pilgrimage or journeying or walking and traveling is all throughout the scriptures. It is a, actually a primary picture that is used for understanding the Christian life. For example, Abraham is considered to be a sojourner, that he leaves. God calls him from his family's land and says, I'm going to give you a promised land. And Abraham's life is one where he is constantly traveling, being led by the Lord. The most common vision we see of this in the scriptures is when Israel, God takes them out of enslavement in Egypt. And they have that 40 years of wandering in the desert looking for the promised land. And then again, we see here in the Psalms of Ascent of the, the, the Israelites journeying year in and year out up to Jerusalem for worship. For worship. But the idea of a journey or a pilgrimage that's describing the Christian life is used also in the New Testament. Jesus relives these Israelite pilgrimages. In fact, we see that Jesus goes down to Egypt and he travels out of Egypt as a child, similar to Israel. He also, he wanders in the desert. And the whole idea, the way the gospels are written, you can have a sense and it feels you read through the gospels that Jesus is on a journey. He's on a pilgrimage that has an inevitable direction towards Jerusalem and towards the cross. And then throughout the rest of the New Testament, the discipleship of the Christian life is seen and described in the terms of walking as a journey. Jesus bids his disciples to follow him as if he is on a journey and we follow him. The writer of the book of Hebrews brings up this idea of us journeying and running a race of on a traveling in chapters 10, 11, and 12 of Hebrews. And Paul brings up the term walk walk for the Christian life throughout his writings. And then we see this in the, the church history as well, in which Christians have taken this idea of the Christian life as a pilgrimage or as a journey, and they talked about it or described the Christian life in this way. In fact, the early Christians were and called themselves literally the way, as if they were on a journey, and this is the way to live life. And of course, the most famous piece of literature and all of Christian history, other than the Bible, is a book by a man named John Bunyan that is called Pilgrim's Progress. It is an allegory of the Christian life that is, being, that is using the imagery of a pilgrim journeying from his, from his home to heaven. And then all the different kind of things that he endures as a part of his Christian life. And so when you read the Psalms of Ascent, you should think of yourself and join with these pilgrims, these Israelites of old, as they are starting a journey. And I think in this moment, at the beginning of a, a new year, that this is apropos for us to grab hold of this imagery of a journey or a pilgrimage of the Christian life. We are embarking on another year, another section of this journey, of this Christian life that is ours. And so what, what do we learn? What can, how do we live out this pilgrim journey as Christians? And what are the things necessary? If the Christian life is one that is a long, just long travel, is a long journey in pilgrimage, what are the provisions that we need? 
Well, what I want to point us to this morning is that the Psalms of Ascent provide us the necessary provisions that we need for this journey. We're not going to look at the, at the at verse by verse or section by section of the Psalms of Ascent, but we're going to look at it from its as a whole, as a its content and its structure as a whole this morning. And the Psalms of Ascent provide us the necessary tools, and it gives us those tools in three ways. First, the Psalms of Ascent provide to us and tell us the points of our journey. If you're, on, if you're traveling, if you're on a vacation or you're on a, going on a trip, it is in, incredibly important to know where you are and where you are going. In other words, the points of a journey are points A and points B. And in order to journey rightly, you have to know where you're, get, where you're at and where you're going and how you're going to get there. And the Psalms of Ascent show us this. And you might ask, how in the world did the Psalms of Ascent tell me the point A and point B of the journey of the Christian life? Well, here we have to get a little bit nerdy, and so bear with me here for just a second and try to follow along with me as I show you how the Psalms of Ascent give us point A and point B of the Christian life. I'm going to try to provide it here in this course of three slides. Writers and poets uh, people who are doing literature will communicate not simply just by the content of what they provide, but also they will use um, the structure of their content to communicate. These are called literary devices. And one of the ways in which uh, poets and writers, one of the literary devices that they use is called an inclusio or a bracket. And what that is, an inclusio, is where a section begins with a particular image or theme, and then at the end of that section, the writer comes back to that same imagery or same theme. Now, how is that the case in the Psalms of Ascent? Here's how we began this morning. In Psalm chapter 120, the theme or the inclusio of the Psalms of Ascent is darkness and a place of despair to a place of light and joy. In Psalm 120, verse 5, the psalmist says, positions himself geographically at the beginning of his journey at a place called Kedar. Now, that is not something that would be familiar to us as Western readers, but the Kedar comes from a verb that means to be dark. In other words, everything about Psalm 120 is rather depressing. The psalmist is saying that I'm beginning this journey, I'm going to Jerusalem, but where I begin is in a place of darkness, where people are lying about me, where I am in distress, where people are hostile towards me. These journey songs begin with the recognition of where we are, that on this earth and in this Christian life, we are be at many times in places of darkness and distress and despair. But then look where the Psalms of Ascent end. In Psalm 134, this is the last Psalm of the Psalms of Ascent, when they, where do they arrive? They are still in darkness, it says. In verse 1, come bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who stand by, where, what time of the day is it? By night in the house of the Lord. These pilgrims arrive to Jerusalem and at the temple at night. There is still darkness. That motif and theme is still there. But notice that the experience here is radically different for the pilgrim. The weary travelers who have now arrived in Jerusalem to the holy city and to the temple, the place of God's dwelling, and they urge the officiants there. They say, sing, 
worship the Lord. We've arrived. Lift up your hands in worship and in praise. And in return, the officiants, the worship leaders at the temple, welcome these pilgrims and say, may the Lord bless you. In other words, they give a benediction. May the Lord who made heaven and earth bless you. In other words, that in Jerusalem and in the Lord's presence in the temple, even night is as day. Even night can be a place of joy and worship. And here's what I want you to see. All that nerdy stuff to bring you down to this point. That the point A and the point B in the Psalms of Ascent is to go from a place of darkness and distress to a place of joy and beauty in the presence of the Lord. In Kedar, it's the place of darkness and cursing and difficulty. And then they arrive in Zion, in Jerusalem, which is the presence of God, where the, even at night there is joy and blessing and singing and light. Hostility is replaced with welcome. Cursing is replaced with blessing. Crying is replaced with praise. And the difference is, well, it's the difference, you might say, between night and day, between darkness and light. And for us as Christians, what this means is the Psalms of Ascent is saying that in the Christian life, our journey is moving from a place of the darkness in this world toward the glorious and joyous presence of the Lord. That is the destination for Christians. We understand where we are. Yes, we're in a place of despair and darkness and difficulty, but where we are going is a place of light, a place of light and joy. And the, the good news for us, for us as Christians, for us as pilgrims, is that the journey of this life is not circular. We will not find ourselves right back in the same place of the woods that we once we started out. It is not a pointless journey, but our journey has a direction, and that direction is the very city of God, the dwelling place of God. Here's actually how Hebrews 11 in the New Testament talks about our journey. It's, giving, it's talking about the great cloud of witnesses, these faithful servants of God, the hall of faith, who have lived out their pilgrim journey faithfully. And here's what it says about them. These all, these pilgrims who've lived out faithfully, died in faith, not yet having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a, another homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, that they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. The spiritual writers in the Middle Ages would use the Latin word viator to refer to the believer on the road to heaven. That's how they would describe the Christian life. The word literally in the Latin means wayfarer or traveler, someone passing through this world. And the term points to the need to see ourselves as Christians as sojourners, not as settlers here, says so people who are passing through the world, not as one who expects or even wants to remain in this place. Therefore, our focus as Christians is towards heaven, toward our true home, the future world that was designed to be our settled and everlasting place. And therefore, if I could say, speak to, in two different directions as a, as a means of application. For those of, the, that you, for those of you this year that find yourself on easy ground, maybe in times of wealth and health and ease, the call would say, 
do not stop longing for heaven. The movement towards the hope of our eternal home. Do not grow contented or overly contented with life here as it is, but cultivate a holy discontent. And therefore cultivate a holy longing and hope for the future and eternal home that is ahead of you. And yet at the same time, for those of you who find yourself perhaps on rocky ground, in a valley of the shadow of death, in seasons of suffering, in valleys of darkness or loss or doubt, I would say to you, do not give up. Do not fall on the ground. Do not give up, but get up and consider what awaits faithful servants of the Lord who like those servants, those journeyers in Hebrews chapter 11, they kept on going. They did not give up. They did instead cultivate a hope for heaven that energizes you, that puts air under your wings and strength in your legs. Now, those are the points of the journey. And it is good news that we are moving from a place of darkness and despair and difficulty to a place of joy in the very presence of God. But the Psalms of Ascent don't simply tell us the points of our destination. They also say, provide us as a guide. The Psalms of Ascent are a guide for our journey. The question for how to get to from A to B is one of the most basic issues of life. And critical to that is asking, how will I move from a place of darkness to a place of joy and light? We need someone who will guide us. We will need someone who will lead us in that path. You need a person to direct you and point the way, to advise you along the way, and walk alongside you as a companion. And so might I suggest to you this morning, as a critical application, that the Psalms are the perfect guide for the journey of the Christian life. They are there smack dab in the middle of your Bible as the companion and guide for you through your Christian life. And here's why. Because the Psalms give us direction in a very clear and profound way. C.S. Lewis, Lewis says many wonderful things, but sometimes he gets it wrong. And he once commented that the Psalms are poems, and poems are intended to be sung, not to be doctrinal treatises. And we may in agree that with Lewis that the Psalms definitely are not doctrinal treatises, but the Psalms do indeed teach great doctrine. In the 4th century, theologian Athanasius pointed out that the Psalms are the epitome of the whole of scriptures, of the scriptures. Basil, the bishop of Caesarea in the 4th century, noted that the Psalms were a compendium of all theology. And Martin Luther, the reformer of the 16th century, described the Psalms saying it is a little Bible And it tells us all that we need to know. You see, the Psalms make much of feelings and emotions. It's so good to connect with us. But the Psalms also talk to us. They talk to our emotions. A psalmist will communicate his emotions and feelings, but then he will communicate and speak to his emotions. He will not allow his emotions and feelings to dictate truth. The Psalms understand that on our journeys, we will sometimes, like desert wanderers, see mirages. And the Psalms confess that our feelings, but then speak and preach to how we ought to correct those feelings, correct how we think, correct our rhythms and patterns. The Psalms even command us and have the audacity telling us to feel different when our emotions are out of sync with the truth of a world where God says, yes, it may look bad, but I am still in control. The Psalms communicate to us what is real and true when our emotions are putting mirages in front of our face. And so the Psalms direct. They give a clear map. 
But what makes the Psalms so good and so comforting in directing us is that they are so personal. You see, the Psalms are not mere maps as we understand it. The Psalms are not simply the voice of Google Max saying things in a very kind of monotone sort of way. Turn right in 200 yards. Turn left at the stop sign. That's not how the Psalms communicate. The Psalms are personal companions on this journey of life. They make it personal. They're like a guide and like a map, but they function more like the maps of old. You see, the maps of old were at their core a distillation of the experiences of previous travelers. Those who have journeyed in the past and recorded their memories in the forms of pictures and symbols and directions. Let me give you an example of one such a map from the world's history. There was a famous map, and it wasn't even so much a map as it was a book that was called The Rutter. The Rutter. It's a strange word, a word that has been taken out of our common usage today, the way we use terms, but it came from the French word routier and refers to the records of those who undertook the great and hazardous journeys of exploring our seaways in the 15th and 16th and 17th century. The 16th century was an an era of unbelievable exploration of unprecedented scale. Following the discovery of the Americas in 1492, many European nations set on their own exploration journeys. They sent many out to open up trade routes and to find these places where they believed there was gold and amazing jewels and incredible wealth of provisions. And the seaways, in order to conquer the seaways, they had to send many out who had no idea where they were going. The the seas are littered with the ships that were taken down in the midst of that exploration. But those who returned, those who would make it to these new uncharted lands and seaways, would come back to their homelands and they would write out in great detail in this book known as the Rudder. They would add to it year in and year out the keys to traveling the seaways. They would give the, say, where's the best harbors and where to go and where, what places to watch out for in which there were rocks and which it was not safe and where one could go and find shelter and the places where there were stormy seas. You see, the rudder was far more of a map than a map. It gives geography. It mixes geography with personal experience, explaining how the journey was made so that others could follow in their footsteps and do the same or avoid or avoid the things where they stumbled. To undertake a journey with a map is therefore to rely on the wisdom of the past. It is to benefit from the hard-won knowledge of those who have gone before you. It is to follow in their footsteps. You see, the Psalms don't simply give us hard truth, but it comes to us as a guide. The Psalms come to us and say, you know what? I know right now life is frightening. It is. I've been here and I've been scared too. The psalmist comes to us and says, you feel like grief is a 2,000 pound pack on your back right now. You feel like it's crushing you and that despair and death are reaching up from the grave as if it has taken hold of your chest and it's pulling you down into the dust. I have been there. And here are the truths that you need to cling to to get through this season. Horatius Bonar he was a, one of Scotland's leading 19th century pastors and hymn writers, another poet. And the theme in, of his writing so much is coping with suffering. And this is fitting because Bonar went through much suffering in his life. He, you see, he lost 
five children in the course of just a few short years, leaving a deep impression of him. And one of Bernard's most characteristic thoughts is that suffering is the family badge, he said, of Christians. Suffering for him was simply inevitable. He called life in this world for Christians on this journey, this exile journey, he described it as a veil of tears. He said this, It is an immense consolation to know that others have known our sufferings before us. They have felt our pain. And the path of sorrow is no unfrequented way. Many saints have walked that road, and we can trace their footsteps. And so it's true in the Psalms as well. Begin this Bible, this year, I would say then, by reading the Psalms. Could you begin? It's actually one of the best places to begin a year of Scripture reading. It's easy and approachable. It connects with you and then teaches your heart how to think and feel. And isn't it convenient? I might say, you can join us. You see, we're beginning the Psalms of Ascent tomorrow. Read this. It's almost like we planned that here at King's Chapel, that you would join us in reading the Psalms of Ascent as we begin this year of Scripture reading. The Psalms in the midst of a long and painful journey in life's difficult circumstances that threaten, that threaten us, the Psalms bring us truth and connection and empathy and compassion for our journey. And so it's so good that we get to listen to the Psalms. We get to hear those words of truth. We get to be comforted by them. Well, lastly, I want to point to the Psalms of Ascent. They give us not only points A and B, they give us there, then our guide, but then along the way, they provide us a joy for the journey. There's joy in singing for the journey. See, the activity of the saints of old, of the Israelites, as they were leave their homes and go to Jerusalem, is they would, on the way, they would worship. The armies of old would sing as they marched. The Psalms provide us the songbook for our pilgrimage. When what would they sing about on their pilgrim road? Now here again, the Psalms helped re- us reflect on the joy that we can have in the midst of the journey, and here's how they do it. Again, we're going to look at the whole of the Psalms of Ascent, not something specific. But in the Psalms of Ascent, we have to understand there's a structure to them. There's 15 Psalms in the Psalms of Ascent. It's laid out in five groups of three Psalms in each group. And the first four of these five groupings follow the exact same pattern. And here's that pattern. The first psalm in each group emphasizes distress, sorrow, and longing. But then the second psalm in each grouping emphasizes the Lord's power to save, to deliver, and to strengthen. And then finally, the third psalm in the triad in each group emphasizes looking forward to our future home and our future resting place. I want you to see, that's cool for me, I hope you would think it's cool too. Maybe it's too nerdy for you. But understand the truth that is being communicated here in the structure. It is something beautiful. The psalmist gets down into our dirt, into the problems and distress and difficulty with us. And then he says, you have joy in these two places. And here's where you look. You look to the saving power of God, which is available to you. And then second, you look to your future hopes and promises that he gives. The psalms, you see, are a verbal portrait of a gallery of God's character and nature. They provide us a striking picture of who God is. They provide true glimpses of the nature of the God who loves us. As you were to read the Psalms, you would hear of a God who is his creator and redeemer and protector and sustainer and provider and guide and so much more. 
The predominant means of speaking about God in the Psalms is through metaphor and simile. Thus we hear of God as spoken of as a shepherd, as a king, as a warrior, as a father, as a teacher, as a judge, and so many other more descriptions. But as Christians, we also have this advantage of the psalmist. You see, he's describing all these metaphors and similes to try to bring out the nature and character of who our God is, but we have the fullest expression of it in Jesus. In Luke chapter 24, Jesus is on the road with two men after his resurrection, and they're dismayed and despairing, and they're on a journey, and they're distressed. And yet Jesus says to them, listen, haven't you read the scriptures? Understand this, that it all points to me. And he says, including the Psalms. You see, in Jesus, the fullness of God's shepherding is seen. We see the fullness of God as our king in Jesus. We see the fullness of God's saving work in Jesus. And so you might find yourself from time to time in this pilgrimage, you might find yourself from time to time this year in quite the pickle. You might be between a rock and a hard place, and you might wonder, how is God saving me from this one? Does, does he have the ability to bring me through this cave of darkness? Does he have the ability to walk me through the death of this dream in my life and this disappointment? Does he have the power to save me from the grip of sin and Satan? And the answer of the cross and of Jesus and his character is, yes, I have already done it and I can do it again. Jesus says, I walked the road, I carried your burden, I bore your sin, I entered your death, I defeated your greatest enemies, and I'm the one who now walks with you. And so the joy for us as believers is that no matter where we go or what we face, you may rest, you may have the touch of cold water on your lips, you may eat of the sweetness of the gospel by meditating upon the joy of Jesus' saving power. So you look back. So to weary travels, travelers entering 2021, and you might be tired, you might be tired. Understand this though, your God is not weary. Your God's power has not been diminished by 2020. Your God's saving work in Christ Jesus has not lost one bit of its saving ability. Your God's willingness to shepherd, to guide, to care for us and to teach us, to deliver us from hardship has not changed. The first psalm in the triad tells us of the difficulty of this life. The second psalm of the triads speak of his saving work. But then the third points us to what's ahead, the anticipation that we have. You know, in the story of Israel wandering in the desert, God was constantly urging her to look back to God's saving work when he brought them out of slavery in Egypt but also to look forward to the promised land when they would cross over Jordan and they would receive all that they had been promised by God. The Christian is thus invited on this pilgrim journey to always be remembering and always be anticipating. Run Rider put it this way, the past and future break into our present life of faith and folding it as if we're in an alpine valley is embraced by the mountains on either side. So if I might use that image of mountain peaks on either side, we are walking in the valley, but we can lift our eyes up on one side, on the left side, and we can have the great acts of Jesus' saving work for us, the cross and the resurrection. And then we can also lift our eyes up to the right side and what is before us, and there we see the beauty of the promises of a life in God forever, where we will luxuriate in heaven in his kindly and caring presence. The future world where we find our settled and everlasting abode. There it was intended. That's what we were to fix our eyes on. Fixing our eyes on Jesus 
and fixing our eyes on him in the future. And what a glad day that will be for us. As pilgrims on the great ascent, our traveling days will be over when he finally returns. We will turn in our hiking boots for flip-flops in the sand. We will exchange our mobile homes for a permanent house. And we will give up cruddy road food for a feasting at his table. I want to leave you with one final image this morning as to what that will look like that on that day. In the dramatic words of Revelation chapter 22, verse 14, it says that in that verse, it says that all those who have been covered by the Lamb, who have been given the robe of Christ's righteousness, it says, and it says it very deliberately, that we will enter the city by the gates. Now, there's something telling by that simple phrase, by the gates. You think it's kind of an obvious thing. How does one enter a city? You enter by the gates. It's like if someone were to show up in your house and that you would say, how did you get in here? They would look at you kind of strangely and say, I walked through the door. Why, why the phrase by the gates? The point of that little phrase is that we will not enter heaven through some side door. We will not be snuck in through some window. We will not have to beg our way into the God's house after this long journey. We will be greeted at the door with welcome and singing. Alistair McGrath, who's a great British historian and theologian, tells the story of some friends of his who were an elderly couple, and they were invited by the Queen of England to come to a garden party. And as they parked their car, they were walking up to the palace, and a well-meaning police officer came up and pointed to a small door that was on the side that was easier for them to access. It was a quicker route. And he said, if you'd like, you can go through there, and you'll find yourselves in the garden, save yourself a walk. And they drew themselves up to their full height, and they said, we have been invited by her majesty. Do you really think we're going to go in through some back gate? McGrath, in describing this, says this, what a day it will be when the gates will swing wide and the trumpets will sound and all the bells of the heavenly city will ring out in delirious celebration from earth's wide bounds, from ocean's furthest coast, through gates of pearl stream in the countless hosts, singing to Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, and we will say hallelujah. You see what awaits us at the end of this journey is the open arms of God, and we will be welcome at the front door and there, just as in the image of Psalm 134, as it closes out the Psalms of Ascent, we will be greeted with blessing, with how we end every service, with a benediction. God is so good. May we enjoy that joy for the journey. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that we would be this year a people who immerse ourselves in the joy that we have in the journey that we would be a people who love to meditate upon what Jesus has accomplished for us. That we would learn from our guide, the psalmists, who are constantly looking to your saving power and your saving character in the heart of our God who goes out for us. And yes, Lord, in the days in which we feel like we cannot take another step, would you beckon our eyes up? Would you remind us about what is ahead? Would you give us a sense and an echo of, of your call from heaven that speaks of your welcome that resides in front of us. And we will look to that day with great joy and delight and get up and fight again and travel again. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.